With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio.
live on the air. Good evening. <clears throat> Good evening. Good evening. Are we live? We are live. Ike, are you there? One second. Okay, we're live. Is everybody here? Everyone's here and present. Yes, we're here. We're just hoping that you guys can hear us since we're here by phone. Yes, but yeah, you need hear, to. Is this? Is this? Uh, we can hear you, but you need to get closer. Is this Jesse or Tika? Okay, so this is Jesse and uh, um. Okay. And say hi, Mom. Hi. Okay, this is Ike. This is better. You, they got to get closer. They got to get in there. All right. Hold on for me one second. Hold on. I mean, you keep talking, but yeah. <laughs> I'm also going to turn off my air conditioner. Okay. Uh, it's hot in here. And it's, no, it's the air conditioner. It's, it's Are we live, CJ? <laughs> We are live. We are live. We're live. <laughs> We're live. Okay, is this better? Yeah, yes, that's, that's, yes. Good. that's good. Okay, okay. <laughs> great, great. So this is Tika, the youngest well, daughter. Well, I'm gonna let me let me let me uh introduce you. Okay. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Real Life Spiels. Um, this evening I'll be your host. This is Conversations with Ajua. And we'll be speaking tonight with the wonderful family of William Melvin Kelly. We have for your listening uh for your listening pleasure, we are having the pleasure of speaking with uh his lovely wife, Ike Kelly, and his two wonderful daughters, Tika and Jesse Kelly. And so please join us this evening. As we speak of husband, author, and father, uh, a story of a love affair and a literary giant. Welcome, everyone. Hi. 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 Hi, Angela. Hi, Ike. How are you? I'm good. Would you just like us to start talking? Um, Absolutely. We, okay, we can begin. So Jesse is going to begin by reading you his autobiography. This is an autobiography that she wrote for him that okay. in um, the English edition of his novel, A Different Drummer, it came out last November. Yeah. So the original book came out in 1962. It came out at the same time as James Baldwin's Another Country. So my husband, mm. who liked to be called Willie, was the baby of the black arts movement. He was a, a good 10, 15 years younger than James Baldwin um, and also younger than Amiri Baraka. But he came out at the same time. So Jesse's going mm-hmm. to his autobiography. And biography. His, I mean, his biography. <laughs> I'm sorry, his biography. <laughs> and then we'll wind it back and I'll tell you all about and his life and our life, and they're going to tell you about him as well. So go for it, Jesse. All right. So I will say it's very brief. It kind of touches on the, the details, the quick details of his life. <clears throat> William Melvin Kelly, 
an African-American writer considered part of the black arts movement, known for his experimental prose and satirical explorations of race relations in America, was born November 1, 1937, in Seaview Hospital, Staten Island, to Narcissa Agatha Kelly, whose maiden name was Garcia, and William Melvin Kelly, Sr. A devout Catholic, Mrs. Kelly suffered from tuberculosis and was advised against continuing her pregnancy. She chose the date of her delivery via cesarean section because it was all Saints' Day. The pregnancy and delivery took a toll on her, and it was four months before the new family could come home from the hospital. William Melvin Kelly Sr., a former editor at Harlem's Amsterdam News, attempted to start several newspapers of his own before settling into a career as a New York City civil servant. The Kellys made their home on the second floor of 4060 Carpenter Avenue, a two-family house owned by Narcissa's brother Joe and inhabited by other members of the Garcia family, including her mother, Jessie. The neighborhood was predominantly Italian, and Mr. Kelly's family were the only family of color on the block. Although he struggled with reading, the Kelly's only child was perceived to be very bright and was enrolled at the elite Fieldston School in Riverdale. Although Fieldston was integrated since the 1920s, Billy was one of the extremely few African-American children enrolled. The contrast between his rich, mostly Jewish friends at Fieldston and his working-class Italian friends at home became the wellspring he drew upon in his writing for years to come. I know rich white people. I know poor white people, he said in a 2012 interview with Mosaic Magazine. I know white people. Kelly was accepted to Harvard University in 1956, intent on being a civil rights lawyer. However, his lifelong struggle with reading prevented success. Always a good storyteller, a skill he attributed to his maternal grandmother, Jessie Marin Garcia, he switched to English. He took classes with John Hawkes and Archibald McLeish, resulting in a short story called Poker Party um, that won Harvard's Dana Reed Prize for creative writing and inquiries from literary agents. Eventually, Kelly decided he enjoyed writing more than anything else and left Harvard six months short of a degree. His first novel, A Different Drummer, was published two years later in 1962. In April of the same year at the Penn Relays, an annual track and field meet hosted by the University of Pennsylvania, Kelly met Karen Gibson, a young woman from Chicago who was studying art at Sarah Lawrence College. While Ms. Gibson fell for Kelly immediately, he was barefoot, and when he smiled, he had big white teeth, said my mom. <laughs> Kelly wasn't convinced. She was the one until he took her to meet his grandmother, Jessie. They sat and talked for hours, completely ignoring me, he would say, and then I knew she was the one. They were married on December 15th, a mere eight months later. Kelly published a book of short stories, Dancers on the Shore, in 1964, which debuted many characters, the Bedloes, the Dunfords, and the Pierces, who would make repeated appearances in other novels. His second novel, A Drop of Patience, followed in 1965, a pivotal year for Kelly. His first daughter, Jessica, that's me, was <laughs> born in February, just days before Malcolm X was murdered in front of his wife and children in Harlem's Audubon Ballroom. A few days later, the Nation of Islam's Temple Number 7 on West 116th was firebombed. The whole thing seemed straightforward enough, Kelly wrote later, but the Jamaicans called tribal war but still I had to look into the faces of the men accused of killing Brother Malcolm, wanted to hear what they had to say about what they had done. 
I got my agent to secure me an assignment to cover the trial for the Saturday evening post, assuring me entrance to the courtroom. So when the trial began in early 1966, I had a front row seat at the press table. In covering the trial, Kelly became convinced that two of the three men accused of the murder, Norman Butler and Thomas Johnson, were being railroaded by the state. After the verdict came in, I drove up the West Side Highway with tears in my eyes and fear in my heart, he said. The events of the preceding three years had severed the last threads of my faith in the American promise. The rich might usually rip off the poor. Politicians might mostly do the will of the industrialists, but at least I had still believed in the independence of the court. Now I had to give up that idea as well. The Kennedy assassination, and now this showed that the state could easily manipulate the courts to serve political purposes. And if the state so badly wanted to convict Butler and Johnson, I knew I wouldn't have the courage to declare the contrary in the pages of anybody's magazine, even if they would publish what I had to tell. I wouldn't assign myself the task of announcing that our new rebellion had failed, that racism had won again for a while, not with a young wife and a toddler depending on me and all this killing going on. By the time I reached the Bronx, I had decided to depart the plantation, perhaps permanently. It took almost two years for Kelly to move his family from New York to Paris. They lived at Four Rue Régis, the same building in which Arthur Richard Wright, who wrote Native Son and Black Boy, had resided a few years earlier. Kelly's third novel, Dem, was published that year. Kirkus Review deemed it more angry than his early work, though acknowledging a powerful and delicate handling of a heavy theme in an unwieldy plot. Kelly's second daughter, Sarah, Hello. Hi. <laughs> was born in May 1968 against the backdrop of Paris's student rebellion. Kelly had intended for their residence in Paris to enable them to learn French and emigrate to Senegal, but not wanting to move too far away from family that remained in the States, they decided instead on Jamaica. They resided there until 1977. In 1970, Kelly's last published novel, Dunford's Travels Everywhere, explored a mythical foreign country that practiced segregation solely based on whether a person chose a blue or yellow clothing scheme on a particular day. Inspired by James Joyce Finnegan's Wake, Kelly wrote portions of the novel in a dreamlike language, drawing on the cadence and tones of African-American patois combined with standard English. Upon returning to America in 1977, Mr. Kelly and his family settled in Harlem. Through a connection with his mentor, American novelist and academic Joseph Papaleo, who wrote in Italian stories, Kelly began teaching at Sarah Lawrence. Although Kelly did not publish another full-length novel after Dunford, he wrote many essays and short stories, appearing in magazines such as The New Yorker, Playboy, and Harper's. His short stories also appear in numerous anthologies and academic textbooks. Kelly received multiple awards during the course of his career, such as the Rosenthal Foundation Award and the John Hay Whitney Foundation Award for a different drummer in 1963. His short story collection, Dances on the Shore, won the Atlantic Review Award in 1964, and his last, Dunford, received honors from the Black Academy of Arts and Letters. As a culmination, he was the recipient of the Anna Field Wolf Book Award for Lifetime Achievement in 2008. 
In addition to writing, Kelly was an avid photographer and videographer. He took several thousand photographs chronicling his life in Paris and Jamaica, and in 1988, he collaborated on a video with mixed media technology artist Stephen Bull called in Harlem. The 28-minute short won a small prize Kelly used to buy a video camera. From 1989 until about 1992, he kept a video diary as a way to capture the beauty of Harlem that he saw around him and felt he could not describe in words. The resulting video, some of it damaged by years of storage, was collected and edited by Benjamin Abrams over the course of two years into another short called The Beauty That I Saw. The film debuted in the 2015 Harlem International Film Festival where it won the Harlem Spotlight Award. Um... And I'll leave it there because that actually leaves out a whole lot. That's the clean version of the story. Well, <laughs> okay. thank you for sharing. <laughs> this, you. Is, this is Tika or Jesse? This is Jesse's show. Jesse. Now I'm turning okay. back over to, so now it's Mama. Now this is Ike talking. Okay. So All right. That's, that's his life. That's the outline of his life. And now wonderful, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and me and the love and this wonderful love story, everyone. This <laughs> wonderful love, love story. story. And how it these lasted. beautiful children came about. And, okay, so the love story lasted 55 years. We were married 55 years when he died. And it was, it was a hell of life. So I'm going to read you a poem. This is a poem that I'm, I'm working on a book about our life together. And I can only write poetry because I can't write prose. My prose sucks. So he was a prose master, and I just I can't talk this. But this is a poem called Meeting Willie. So this, this will tell you everything about him and me. So, okay. Everyone calls him Billy, Billy Kelly, when we met the first time in Harlem, 706 Riverside Drive. At 14, I had come from Chicago with my parents. We had a suite at a midtown hotel. I took a cab uptown to my friend's apartment, 1955, late summer. I met Joyce in Oak Bluff. We bonded sitting on the sand at the inkwell. She said I needed to meet her older brother in New York. So I found myself in the yellow cab going up the drive to meet him. Joyce and her brother went to private school like me in Chicago. They had class, Joyce and her brother. My parents had money. Creole circles run tight. My parents knew her parents. So I could take a cab from 43rd and Madison Avenue uptown to Creole, Harlem. Riverside Drive Apartments had space, big enough for a pool table in the parlor. The brother and I sat close on the couch, his arm around my shoulder. I saw a boy shooting pool across the room, wearing a sweatshirt the color of dried peas, brown corduroy pants. He looked up, piercing, arrogant eyes. We didn't speak. Billy Kelly is 17. Boston, 1958, spring. I had traveled with my mother to interview at Radcliffe. I had no chance of getting in. An old friend of hers had married well, owned a house, and knew young people. She gave a get-together for me to meet the Harvard and Wellesley crew. Billy Kelly, now at Harvard on a scholarship, got invited. He didn't show up. A Harvard guy said, Kelly, he's with a white girl. He won't come. 
Philadelphia, 1962, April, Penn Relay Weekend, Epic Party Weekend. The young man I loved wanted me to come. I had ambivalent feelings. I had gotten serious about my art and didn't see the point of a party weekend two months before my graduation. But to please him, I took up the bus from Port Authority to Philly. We stayed at the home of a Philly girl who had just graduated from Bryn Mawr on her way to Yale Law. Her parents opened their house. We had a boy's room, a girl's room, and a room for a newly married couple. Sitting in a comfortable living room around a large oak table having a beer, Billy Kelly materialized from late afternoon April haze. Bare feet, carrying his shoes, wearing shorts, talking loud, the double-day catalog in his hand. A different drummer was to come out in June. He started snapping out jokes about cannibal kings and weed. I liked his strong hairy calves, his big wolf teeth. He had confidence. Before the party, spring maiden dance, we all went to the relay races. I sat in the bleachers, hungover, bored, and tired. Only so much passing the baton could hold my attention. I felt warm hands on my shoulders. Billy sitting behind me on the bleachers, massaging my tight shoulders. A good massage. Strong hands, kind hands, finding all my knots, insecurity, confusion. I didn't think he had an ulterior motive. A nice circumspect massage, no grabbing for my butt, no reaching for a squeeze of breath. The young man I loved didn't even notice. The relays ended finally. We went back to the house to change for the party. I put on a blue silk dress, fitted top and full skirt. It had a little jacket lined in yellow with white polka dots. I looked ordinary. Indeterminate hair pulled back with a headband, nice colored girl look. That look didn't fit my wild streak, my determination not to become my mother. I wanted out of the colored bourgeoisie. Downstairs, the party had begun. My eyes scanned the dark basement for Billy Kelly while the young man I loved began to drink. I found him upstairs in the comfortable living room. He had changed into corduroy pants, Harvard crimson crew neck sweater, pulled over a white button-down shirt a glass of amber scotch in one hand, a camel cigarette in the other, standing there more alone than I'd ever seen anyone. Now, I could handle some scotch whiskey. I never mixed liquor, never got giddy or giggly. Truman, my dad, taught me well. I learned from him to focus. I got focused, and my focus was Billy Kelly. <laughs> the young man I loved had gotten wasted the kind of wasted that verges on blacking out in a heap on the floor. He had found a chair instead and collapsed, still conscious enough for me to say, what the fuck is wrong with you? I stood watching him for two minutes, getting no response. I kicked fire out of his shin. <laughs> Early morning, the party over. Coming out of the bathroom after washing my face, my blue dress wilted and sad. I might have cried, but probably not. I opened the door and he's standing there, naked to the waist, his chest hairy for a brown kid. Well-formed, broad shoulders, narrow waist, solid, not too chunky, not too skinny, 
Just right, says Goldilocks, licking her lips. <laughs> Don't try to solve all your problems in one night, he said. I went back to Sarah Lawrence, graduated, never saw the young man I was in love with again, and that was April. In December, Billy Kelly and I got married, okay? <laughs> it was a good, yes, a good summer. A different drummer came out in June. And he got invited to several writers' conferences, really important ones. He went to Breadloaf, where he met the poet Robert Frost. He got invited to one at Staten Island, which was kind of a big deal. And everybody was fawning over him and calling him the star. And the reviews for a different drummer were really good, pretty much universally, like, amazing. And they were amazed with him. They were amazed at the book. They were amazed with the premise of the book. And it's kind of mythical feel, and you can get the book now. It has been reissued by by double by a Random House. Excuse me. It is now in Barnes and Noble, and it's also up on Amazon. And it is more relevant than ever because it is the story of a young man down south who spontaneously decides to burn his his home down, destroy his land, and leave. And all the Negroes in this mythical state follow him, leaving this state and leaving the white people standing there with their mouths hanging open, trying to figure out what happened. So that's a different drummer. But anyway, we got married. So we um, we had a well. He didn't really want to get married, kind of, but I did, and so we were going to get married. <laughs> and so in December, we had a small. Um, small wedding at Ethical Culture Society on 60th and Central Park West because he'd gone Steelson, so we could, we, we could do that. Um, we had a very small reception. My parents uh, had a hotel room, and our families came, and my, my parents were not particularly happy about this wedding. In fact, my mother was not happy at all. But they rose to the occasion, and they gave us a cake and whatnot. We had a really nice time. And then we came back to our apartment in Riverdale, and he carried me over the threshold, and then he went back and carried over my bag of dirty laundry because (laughs) I was a princess, and I had never been to a – well, I went to a laundromat once, and I looked at the machine. I couldn't figure out how to make that thing work. I had a slot on it. What the hell got put into the slot? I took my clothes back home and they didn't wash them. So when we got married, I had to bring all my dirty clothes with me. Now, fortunately, because his mother had been had been really ill most of his life, and she finally died when he was 18, he and his father did all the family laundry. And he actually liked to do laundry. He found it very soothing to sit in the laundromat. And he would think and he would get ideas. So he really didn't mind doing laundry, which was amazing because I couldn't. So we got married. We had a very nice apartment in Riverdale. And we we kind of lucked out with that. It was on the, the it was owned by Fieldston School. So um and his his friend Joe Papaleo, who Jesse mentioned before, um had worked at Fieldston and had uh, had arranged for us to help us get this apartment. So it was 1963. We got married in December 62. And um, I remember I wanted a Christmas tree because I was used to having Christmas. I had big Christmas and lots of presents and 
things, and so I insisted on getting a Christmas tree. Well, we didn't have anything to put on it or under it and whatever, but we were in love, so it didn't matter. So we, um, it, was, it was a very interesting year. We, we listened to a lot of music. He was writing. He was working. He was finishing up um, the stories for Dancers on the Shore, and he'd begun working on his second novel, A Drop of Patience. And I set up a little easel in the front room, and he would write in the bedroom, and I would paint in the living room. And I wasn't very good, but I was determined because when we got married, we decided that we would both stick to stick to our art. And it was very important for me to have an identity separate from him. So I was very serious about continuing my painting, and that went well. And um, he, he told me when we got married, he said, there's two things that I'm going to lay down the law. I never want you to do these two things. I said, okay, what? He said, I never want you to come between me and my writing. And I never want you to read my diary. I said, mm. okay. Sounded like a good deal. And I never did. He kept diaries all his life. He could leave them open. He just never read them. I mean, we were together so much of the time. I just, I guess I didn't have any real curiosity about it. And I told him, I said, listen, this is my rule. If you play around, I don't want to know, and I want all your money. Okay? <laughs> he stuck with that deal. agreement. Because <laughs> <laughs> men are like men. What can I say? Eh, whatever. But um, <laughs> so, so during that year, he got the Richard and Hinder Rosenthal Award, and we realized that we could travel. Oh, and before before we got married, a very wise man gave gave me some advice, gave us both some advice. He was a doctor, and, you know, back in the day, before you used to get married, you had to have a blood test to prove you didn't have syphilis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we went to him, and we didn't have a cyst, so that was good. And he looked at us, and he said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. He said, wait a year before you have kids. He said, get to know each other. Make sure you like each other before you bring a baby into the mix. And it sounded like really a really good thing to do, and, and we, we stuck to it. I had a little scare when we first got married, and, you know, after all the excitement of the wedding and everything, my period was late, and I'm like, oh, shit, you know, I'm pregnant, you know. But fortunately, <laughs> I wasn't. So we realized, wow, we've been given this gift, and we have the gift of a year, and we are going to take it. So when he got the Richard and Hendra Rosenthal Award, we decided to to leave, to travel. And I wanted to go to Greece, and I wanted to be, you know, like an old hippie and lay on the beach in Mykonos and, you know, wear fancy clothes and smoke smoke hash. Um, he wanted to go to London because he was interested in language, so we compromised and we went to Rome. So, are you here? Yeah. Okay. We all are here. <laughs> okay, good. So, so we went to Rome. Um, we took a boat to Rome left in October of 1963 and we took the Cristoforo Combo to Naples and we got off in Naples and then took the train to Rome and he had a he had a friend who had an apartment in Rome and he, he left. He'd been in the movie business or something and so we could sublet his apartment and he had actually another friend who lived in Rome who was married to an Italian woman um, who helped us out and met us and helped us get situated in this apartment. And it was an amazing apartment. It was in the Jewish ghetto of Rome by Portico d'Octavia. And the address was 
34 Via Forum Piscario, which I'll never forget. And it had, I had a huge, huge door, and it had a huge key. It was like a giant metal skeleton key that we had to carry everywhere with us. And it had two rooms, and it was it was very nice in October when we when we moved in. It had two little beds and it had books and whatever. And then it started to get cold. And then we realized they didn't have central heating. They didn't believe it. They couldn't afford central heating in Italy. So we had these great big stone walls and tile floors and no heat. So we found out that our friend told us we had to buy a little heater called a bombola. And with the bombola, you would buy um, propane gas and you would put it in and you could heat the apartment that way. So we got a, we got our bombola and we got the propane gas and we went through it in two weeks. And he said, this is supposed to last you three months. Yeah, well, like, we from this part, this shit is cold. So we kind of, we kind of been starting to wear our coats and gloves and things. And he was right in the bedroom and I had the big room and I would paint in the front room. And it was really quite amazing. And then in November, November 22nd, we were walking down the Via Corso, the uh, Via del Corso in Rome. And it was the evening. And we heard people selling newspapers, and they were yelling, Kennedy assassinado, Kennedy assassinado. And I knew enough Italian to figure that out, like Kennedy is assassinated, but. So we bought the paper and found out that, you know, because it's a time lapse the assass- about the assassination of Kennedy. And it was, mm-hmm. it was like, it just hit me in my gut. And I just looked at him and I said, what's going to become of us? Here we are in, in Rome, in Italy. You know, what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the world? What's going to happen to us? So we went down the street and we went to a restaurant called Peppino, where a lot of students and artists hung out. And we went into Peppino, and we were like, we were in shock. And most people were speaking Italian, and we sat down at the table. We had some wine, and a, and a voice uh, called across the room, hey, hey, you guys. And we looked up, and it was a, 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 a painter. His name was Simon Gouverneur, and he was Venezuelan, but he'd grown up in the Bronx. So it was like somebody we could talk to, you know. So he told us, he said, why don't you come back to my apartment and look at my paintings and we said okay and so we did and we walked back to his apartment and we walked in and when he opened the door his paintings were like the most amazing paintings I've ever seen they were full of life and the tropics and and um, Africa and rhythm and and Venezuela and it was just an amazing thing and so we became we became very close friends with him and he was a little bit older than we were, and he began to teach us about African art, about how to really look at African art and how to, how to decode uh, uh, African art, to look at it in its cultural context and to see its profound sophistication and knowledge. And it just changed our lives. I mean, that was when we realized that what we knew about Africa and what we had been taught and what we had learned in college, which was much of nothing, was, was a lie. It was just a lie. Mm-hmm. And here we stepped over into this world. And um, so we spent a lot of time with Simone, and he, he, would, he would get um, magazines, and he would show me the, the sculpture, and he would point out the details. He'd point out things in the 
in the carvings, and he would ask me, he said, why do you think they made the figures like this? Why are they squat? Why are not they tall and slim? Like, you know, we used to see Roman statues and Greek statues. He said, think about it. Think about it. Think about the choices that they made and why they made them. And then I realized, you know, it was about power and how, how powerful these, these figures were. And, I mean, they had asked, they had revolutionized uh, modern art in, in, in Europe because Picasso and, and, and uh, Matisse and the, the great artists had looked at African art and they had created cubism, you know. So I began to look at it, and, and it was just, it was an amazing time. And we had a lot of, we had many adventures in Rome. My favorite adventure with Simone was that we liked to we liked to go by the river and sit, and there was a little out, a little place by the Tiber River where you could sit and look at the Vatican. And Simone would pull out his pipe. He had this little jewel pipe, and we'd sit there and smoke kiss, and we'd blow the smoke to the Vatican. He said, this is for you, Pope. And he would blow the smoke <laughs> into the Vatican. And so, you know, that was really cool. And we met a lot of, uh, we met a number of painters, a lot of painters. And uh, and it was, it, we were so free when we were there. We were young. We didn't have kids. And we were totally free of race. There was no race in Rome. We just were what we were. I mean, in, in our neighborhood, they called us, they called him Il Negro e la Bella Donna. And that was what we were. And all the little kids thought he was the soccer player Pele. And when he walked down the street, they kicked soccer balls at him. And he couldn't play soccer with the damn, you know. And he kicked the ball back, and he looked impressive. And they would all cheer and, like, Pele, 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 you know. But other than that, you know, we, we just became a part of the neighborhood. I had to learn to shop in Italian. So I had to learn my first experience buying chicken. Because everything, you bought fresh chicken. There was a guy down down the street, and he sold fresh chicken. And I went in, and I asked for half a chicken. And so he took his chicken and cut that thing in half. I had half uh-uh. a brain, half a brain <laughs> one leg, half a gut. Uh-uh. And I said, oh, my, oh, God, what do I do with this thing? So I kind of held my breath and cut the head off and threw the head away, you know. <laughs> but, mm. but, um and then I learned how to buy cheese. You know, I had to go in and ask for an ento de mozzarella, per favore. You know, and how to ask for olives and things like that. It was, it was, just, it was an amazing year. It was just an amazing year. At the toward the end of the year, we we had we got the urge. We said, okay, we we've been married for a year. You know, it's time to think about the little bambina. So. I got pregnant in Rome, and we chose it. We picked the time. We said, okay, we're going to do the thing. We're going to get pregnant. So it, we can do it. We can do it. We can go back to the state. And um, as a matter of fact, he had gotten a job. He gotten a job offer in America. And he gotten an offer to teach at, at Geneseo University in Rochester. So he said, okay, we'll have a little bit of money. You know, I can pay. We can pay for the baby to come. We can have the apartment. And I'll go teach in Geneseo, you know, part of the week and then come back to New York. So I got pregnant in Rome. And we uh, traveled from Rome. We spent a wonderful summer in Cunit, which is a little small town in Spain with some friends of ours. And then we drove with them from Cunit, which is right outside of Barcelona. We drove through the mountains and to Paris. And our friends went back to the States, and we stayed for another week, and then we, we came back to America. It's kind of a little glitch because 
he went to the American um, um, uh, to the American Express in in um, Paris to get money um, from America to buy a plane ticket to come back. And he found out they didn't have any money at all because all his money had gone in taxes to America for taxes mm-hmm. on a different drummer on the, on the, the contract that he had signed. So we were kind of stuck in Paris, and I'm pregnant, and we can't get back, but we scrambled up. I think his sister sent us money so we could come back to America. So we came back mm-hmm. to the apartment in Riverdale, and um, I was happily pregnant. And he was working in Geneseo, so he would go every Sunday night. He would take the plane to Rochester, and he would teach in Rochester until Thursday. And on Thursday, he would take the plane back to and come back to to New York. And um, we did this until I had the baby with Jessica, and then Jessica was born in New York, and um, she was born three days before three days before the assassination of Malcolm X which was really devastating for us because when we came back to America, we were going to join Malcolm's organization. We'd seen a lot of stuff. We'd seen the assassination. We had been, um, you know, back back. When we first got married, they had the March on Washington, and we decided not to, not to attend the March on Washington because we didn't, we didn't demonstrate. I, I think we were both only children. We were very kind of solitary people, and we just didn't, we didn't demonstrate. We didn't march. We didn't demonstrate. But we wanted to use our art to affect change. So, but we had heard about Malcolm while we were in Rome. We'd been following him and listening to him. And we said, wow, you know, he's making, he's, he's amazing. He's making sense. He's talking sense. This is something that we can join. So we were ready to join the organization. And then he was assassinated. And that was like, that was, that was devastating. That combined with what we had learned from Simone and Rome, we realized that you know we had to we had to do something. We had to get out again. So we kind of it was kind of half formed, but we we moved then from Riverdale. We moved to the North Bronx to 842 East 224th Street between Barnes and Bronxwood Avenue. Mm. We had a nice uh, found an apartment. There's some really, really nice people, really cool people. And it was one of those attached apartments, and I turned the bedroom into a studio. He had a little room in the front that was his office where he would go and shut the door and write. And we moved the bed into the living room, and then Jesse had a little room in the back. And, and it was working, and I was doing a lot of painting. And he was, he was then really, I guess, finishing up. Um, uh, he started them. He started them in the Bronx working on them. That was why it was so, you know, they said it was bitter. It wasn't bitter. It just kind of told the truth, you know, because them was his uh, phonetic symbol for them. And the book said, let me tell you how them folks live. So his idea with them was to tell African-American people how white people really live and what they were really like from, you know, his perception, you know, being up really up close and, and, uh, so that was what he was working on. So he covered the trial of Malcolm X. And not only did he feel that the guys got railroaded, um, when he went one day, they, would, they, were to- they were describing one of the guys, uh, one of the accused killers, and they said he had a beard. The judge looked at the journalist's table where he was sitting, 
And at that time, you had a full beard. And the judge looked at Kelly. He said, like that man there, and he made him stand up and pointed him out in the court. When he came home that night, he said, we got to get out of here. He said, I'm a black man with a beard. I am marked. So pack up. Mm-hmm. We are leaving. <laughs> so he did. We, we, Jesse was then two, and we packed up everything. We packed up the apartment, and um, we took a plane to Paris. And we thought uh, the reason we went to Paris, we'd been there before, so we didn't know somebody. And we thought, well, if we learn French, we'll be able to find a place to go. We were kind of thinking of Senegal. Well, we can find, we can meet Africans, and we can talk to them up close, and we can find a country that would be, you know, that would be suitable for us to go and, 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 and take our family. So we kind of um, went to Paris, and uh, I I had met um, in the Bronx, I had met a wonderful young woman who became Jesse's babysitter, and her name was Gail. So Gail was, had been very involved with the civil rights movement, and, and uh, she, was, she was young, she was 17, and she didn't kind of know what to do with her life, and so I suggested that she apply to Sarah Lawrence. So we got her, with our help, she got accepted to Sarah Lawrence, and then I said to her, well, listen, you're going to Paris. Why don't you take a year off? Come with us to Paris. You can babysit. You know, I don't you have where I can't pay you, but I can feed you, and you'll have a wonderful time. And, and, and her mother agreed to it. So Gail met us in Paris. So that was, a, that was an, a, an amazing thing. And while Gail was in Paris, we met a lot of musicians in Paris, and she met the avant-garde Marion Brown, who had a group. He was contemporary with Archie Schaaf, and um, he played a lot in Europe, and we met him in Paris, and he and Gail fell madly in love, and they married. Like two years later, they got married. So, But we met all kinds of, uh, we did meet Africans. We went to meet Africans, and we met Africans, and we realized that we couldn't do it, that we weren't ready for mm. Africa. We weren't physically ready for Africa. We weren't spiritually ready for Africa. We, could, we, we just, we couldn't do it. And um, we had a really wonderful friend from the Cameroons, and he was very upfront with us. He said, yeah, you can't do it. You can't do it. And then it, it, there were a lot of people, it was, it was a lot of turmoil in Africa at that time, and then I got pregnant with Tika, which was a wonderful thing because we were both only children, and I said, listen, it's time. Jesse is two going on three. We need another baby. I want another baby. He wanted mm. another baby. Kind of, but, you know, men are like whatever. But I wanted another <laughs> kid. <laughs> so Tika, I got pregnant in Paris, and Tika was born in French. Because the man said, the doctor said as she was born, oh, madame, such a beau such a handsome boy. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's a girl. Sorry, it's my life. And so she was born during the what they called the the grève. You know, it was a general strike in Paris. The students were tearing up the city, and the whole city had come to a halt. There was no subway system. There were no cabs. There was no television. The students shut down the entire city, and I'm sitting in the hospital with this baby. So nobody could come and visit me. So it was me and Tika in the hospital alone. And in France, when you have a baby, they put them in this little sweater contraption that's like a straight jacket, and they tie 
their arms and they swallowed them really close. But it was just her and me in the room. So as soon as the nurses would leave, I'd untie her, take her arms out. We'd walk around the room, go look in the mirror. And I'd talk to her. <laughs> she's like, I mean, we have a relationship now. Pretty much. <laughs> we do. <laughs> so, excuse me. So, after Tika was born, we had to... We had to make the decision, and, and, and really, we knew we couldn't stay in Paris. We had done one winter there, and Paris in the wintertime is bleak. It is cold, and it is dark, and it is wet, and it is just depressing. So we were like, no, we got we to get to this time. So we had met a, um, a Jamaican, a young man from Jamaica. Uh, he, he'd grown up in New York, but he had family in Jamaica. His name was Trevor Stevens. And Trevor had gone to Paris to become an actor. And Trevor was one of the first really dark guys who shaved his head clean. And Trevor was gorgeous. He really was. He never really made it as an actor, but, he, you know, he would get parts. He did, he did some movies. But he was just like a really cool guy. And he would come over. And when I was pregnant, he would come and cook for me. So he liked to cook fish. And so he would come over and cook and we got to be really friendly with him. And so he told us, he said, why don't you go to Jamaica? He said, it's like Africa. He said, I have family there. And it's close enough to New York. So if you have family, you know, they can come and visit you. You won't be totally isolated. So we said, mm, sounds like a plan. Okay. So we did. So we packed up Jessica and put and put Tika in a, in a little carriage and took the plane to Jamaica and got off in Jamaica. And they took one look at Willie, and they said, uh, you can't come in here. You have a beard. Because in Jamaica at that time, they had just had a, um, a tremendous uh, problem with a guy named oh, Rodney. I can't remember his first name. He was a writer, and he was a socialist. And he kind of stirred the island up, and they weren't looking to let you know, anybody bearded, you know, wild-eyed radicals in Jamaica. So we had to stay in the airport for hours and beg them.
and um, because mm-hmm. I didn't quite have the temperament for Jamaican school, so you know we stayed home. Um, Jesse went to school for a little while, and then after that, we were we were homeschooled, which was you know it, 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 for us it was normal. I mean, we ended up on the dead end of a dead end street, you know, a double dead end, a triple dead end actually. It was one dead end from the main street a dead end to the end of the block, and then another dead end on the beach, you know, so it was awesome. So though we didn't have, like, you know, we lived in our own bubble. Um, It was just us, basically the four, and every so often some random neighbors would appear and disappear. Um, Ladies, can I jump in here a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yes. We have have a little bit of time left. We're almost out of time. Um, I want you to tie up (laughs) just talking a little bit about living in Harlem, being that, you know, you are from Harlem uh, in a sense that that is that your father, his last days were in Harlem. Am I correct? Absolutely. Yes. When we left left Jamaica, um, we first landed in Chicago and then we came to New York. So my father and I actually – one day we went on one of our, you know, being homeschooled, we went on one of our nature hikes to find an apartment um, for us to live in because we were staying in a in a hotel um, downtown. So he and I got on the train, you know, it was overwhelming because, you know, it was a train. I'm like, what the hell? But um, we, we came, we got off on 127. He was kind of like, I guess he knew uh, where to go, but, he said, all right, look, this seems like a pretty good, you know, time to get off. Let's just get off. And for some reason, it was just me and I. And um, we we walked around, and, you know, at that time, you could just walk around and kind of like, hey, you know, are there apartments for rent? You know, that doesn't happen anymore. So we um, we came on to an apartment, came to an apartment on 125th and 5th. Um, the, the super, there was no landlord around, and the super – um, showed us this apartment that hadn't been painted in 20 years. It was literally two rooms. And the price was right, and my father said, we'll take it. And we stayed mm-hmm. in that apartment for, what, 35 years, 37 <laughs> years, something like that? We ended up, yeah, all together. We, you know, we branched out in the building. We, um, we all four of us were in the two rooms, and then my sister and I, when I was 14, I guess, yeah. Um, and she was 17, 18, yeah. something like that. We moved to the apartment next door. Then I ultimately moved into an, another apartment when my oldest daughter came. Um, and then, you know, we just, like, put down our roots on 125th and 5th. And, yeah. and, you know, so much happened, you know. I mean, we lived And what an interesting of- neighborhood, I must say, to, <laughs> right? to live in Harlem, <laughs> across the street from Mount Morris Park. Am I correct? That's yeah. right, yep. Um, yeah, you know yes. the 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 the, um, the park was our the park was our playground. You know, we climbed yes. the mountains in Mount Morris. We went to the pool after hours when people were swimming yes. their dogs, and you know we would go <laughs> swim pool with the dogs. Don't ask. Yeah, you know they had the chess players, and but that was like our home base. You know. Yes, I know. The, the library around the corner. You know, we yes. um, when we were in Harlem, we. Uh, uh, made kufis in front of the Tree of Life with uh, yes. <laughs> uh, olives and and you know um, um, uh, 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 Ma Rainey who ended up being our children's 
her daughter ended up being our children's music teacher at CPE. Yeah. You know, so mm. it's kind of like, you know, the old school Harlem. Where we yes, Harlem, Harlem is so rich. People don't realize how rich it is to live in Harlem. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful Harlem. experience to grow up in Harlem. Oh, it absolutely. Is, really. when, when Harlem Day was on... Uh, was on uh, 125th and it wasn't on 135th. Like people don't know that anymore, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But the thing was, was that coming from Jamaica and coming from and what what I was getting to is coming from Jamaica and being that that was my home. When I came to Harlem, it was like so new and so fresh and so exciting. And you know, we had our friends and we had, you know, um, um, these connections, lifelong connections that we made. I mean, and we have know, to stop here. I'm so okay. sorry because I want no, you to. I, I want to talk about the the next time that you come on, and I do hope that you join us again because it's oh, been a will. pleasure listening to you and so <laughs> informative. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> you know, That'll thank you for coming, and um, yeah, please come again and, and tell us the name of the book again, please. A different drummer. And where do we find it? You know, uh, a, 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 a daughter of mine was walking around in uh, Barnes & Noble on 14th. 14th Street and Union Square, and it was on display. So you can go right down oh, to Barnes & Noble or Amazon or the Penguin Random House website and pick it up. And All right. Like. And the cover Ladies. is done by Jessica. Jessica did the design the cover. Great. <laughs> Ladies, yeah. thank you again. And have a wonderful evening. Until we meet again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.